Please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 1, 1 through 6. Please read with me the verses in bold. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I think we have kids uh, under the tent, and I know we have kids' activity pages up in the front. And so if you are a kid or if you are wanting to grab one for your kid, we have uh, clipboards up in the front, and I'm going to ask kids to come and pick those up right now. All right, good morning. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Thankful that uh, we get to do this again. This is a neat treat to, uh, to gather together when the weather is nice. We have a tent to protect us from the sun. We have all sorts of uh, opportunities to gather together. And so we're so thankful that you can join us this morning, whether uh, under the tent or online. Thanks for joining us in the season of Lent uh, as we have been uh, talking about this uh, season of Lent is a 40-day journey in preparation for Easter Sunday. We are l- a little less than halfway through, and by next Sunday, we'll be a little bit more than halfway through. Uh, historically, Lent was a time when new Christians would fast, they would study the scriptures in preparation for new baptisms. For, for new Christians, uh, they would be getting ready for baptism, but over the years, Eventually, entire congregations practiced Lent as a sign of Christian discipleship. So our sermon series, uh, the last uh, two weeks, until we hit Easter, we're calling Intentional Pursuit, a look at spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines that draw us into an intentional pursuit of Jesus. We had a chance to look at two such practices, the discipline of prayer and the discipline of confession. This morning, we're looking at a third such discipline. In the first psalm of 150 of them, there are 150 psalms in the book of Psalms. The writer uses the imagery of a tree planted by streams of water to describe a person who delights in the Word of God. In verse 3, a tree is used to picture a person's dependence on the Word of God. And the blessings from which flow from it, the life of a tree is dependent on the continual supply of water. And the point being made is is just that, that the life of the tree is dependent on a water supply. A supply of water, the spiritual life of the believer is dependent on the abundant supply of the word of God. 
And this morning, we have the pleasure of looking at meditation, a, a spiritual discipline that draws us to the heart of God. The psalmist begins the very first psalm with a negative, not the positive. It can be misleading because it is a positive word that is the first word of this particular psalm. But the psalmist begins by saying, blessed is the man. But it continues with what the righteous person does not do. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. A few years ago, before homes were constructed to fill out the other half of the circle we live on, the land on which those houses were built was just a large field, hardly maintained. My kids, when they were younger, would trek through that field on a dirt path a shortcut to get to school, but surrounding that dirt path were, were overgrown weeds that would be mowed just once a year by the company who owned the land just as a way of avoiding penalties and liability if there ever was a fire during the dry, hot California days of summer. One of the interesting things that would happen in the fall is that these overgrown weeds would dry up, they would detach from the roots, and roll about in the field like an old Western movie. And would eventually start collecting in the driveway of my house. I had a whole family of them. They were ugly. They were thorny and prickly. They would be as big as three feet in diameter, and on windy days, they would be impossible to place on the street for pickup. Those tumbleweeds on that large field of grass or weeds next to our home have these a single rather narrow roots which turn brittle. And their limited root structures results in a short life, death, and the subjection of the, the will of the winds. And that's why you see them flying around everywhere because they are not connected. There is no connectivity to a life-sustaining water. And so I would have these. I don't have that problem anymore with houses that have completed the circle on our streets. But it was interesting to, to find these in my home. And it's almost the picture that you get. I mean, if you were to look at it, the compare and contrast that's happening in the book of Psalms is of a big tree with, with deep roots right along the riverbank. That's precisely the illustration the psalmist used to describe a person who is dependent on the word of God. But then there's a contrast, the comparison, because again, when you read the psalm, there are comparisons or contrasts between 
two paths. There's a comparison of two ways of life. There are those who heed godly counsel versus those who follow their own counsel or worldly counsel. There's a tree firmly rooted by streams of living water, and then there are tumbleweeds. And again, the psalmist will use the word chaff, blown about by the will of the winds. This psalm has two main characters. The author uses the righteous and the wicked to describe these two categories of characters. However, these are not moral performance categories. The righteous are not those who have had a good week of quiet times, time spent in the Word, and the wicked are not those who have failed to pick up their Bible this week. Don't look at yourself and judge yourself. It's not a contrast between those who have prayed this week versus those who forgot. It is not a comparison of those who gave to the poor versus those who didn't. We want to make sure that we understand that these are not moral performance categories. This is not a measure of our spirituality, how good of a Christian we are. This is not a comparison of a good Christian versus a wicked one. These are categories of status or position. The blessed person are those who have embraced God's grace. They are those who have been chosen by God and loved by God. It's a familiar word. It's the word blessed to describe these folks who have been chosen by God. Last week, I gave a very simple definition of a spiritual discipline. A spiritual discipline is a habit or regular pattern in your life that repeatedly brings you back to God and opens you up to hear what God is saying. It's simple and to the point. In the same light, the spiritual disciplines were never meant to be a marker of how good of a Christian we are. God does not love you more the more you do it. And God doesn't love you any less the less you do it. That's not what the spiritual disciplines are. They were never meant to help us be better to be the Christian model of excellence or to be exceptional that has never been nor is ever the goal of our faith. Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration of Discipline, The Path to Spiritual Growth, says this, when we despair of gaining inner transformation through human powers of will and determination, we are open to a wonderful new realization. Inner righteousness is a gift from God to be graciously received. Did you guys get that? It's not a matter of human will or determination. It's a gift of God. And the question I think the psalmist is asking every reader is this. What is the good and righteous way that God has designed for his people? And a follow-up question is like it. How do I live in light of that. The spiritual disciplines are a regular pattern that repeatedly draws us back to the heart of God, 
God has given us these spiritual disciplines as a means of receiving His grace. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that He can transform us. So let's read through it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers. Psalm 1 surprises many people because it begins not with the positive, but with the negative. The blessing begins with, the, with what the righteous person does not do. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of the sinner. And he certainly does not sit in the seat of the mockers. His delight is not in the things of this world. The blessed person is someone who does not get lured into ways of thinking, into ways of behaving, or ways of belonging to this world. He or she is not guided by or instructed by or delighting in the things of this world. The blessed person refuses to be anchored by this world. But I must confess that it has not been easy to heed the counsel of the news that I read or the news that I listen to each day. To read it and to listen to it like it's the gospel. I know that we are constantly bombarded from a million different sources and it's easy to feel overwhelmed and retreat to spaces filled with people who think and feel like we do. We tend to favor and seek out information that supports our existing views while avoiding information that conflicts with ours. And wherever we land, if we're not careful, might become for us that place of the counsel of the wicked, of the way of the sinner, or the seat of the scoffer. Friends, the counsel of the wicked comes in all forms. Sometimes, it's the voices within. Sometimes, it's our own intuition. Sometimes, it's our ability to reason or to think reasonably or rationally. Sometimes, it's the president or the former president. Sometimes, it's our experiences. Sometimes in the, it comes in the way of gut feelings. Sometimes it's our family or those we trust in this inner circle. Sometimes it's what makes the most fiscal sense. It can be all sorts of things, and there's nothing inherently wrong with finding counsel in any of these or all of these. But the psalmist is warning the reader, beware that we do not seek counsel contrary to the word of God. Instead, in verse 2, the psalmist writes, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this he meditates day and night. 
And before we get carried away, I just want to pause here for a moment because I do think there's a danger of thinking of the spiritual disciplines as just religious exercise or as just a spiritual activity. It's just what Christians do. But I do think it's more than that. A spiritual discipline is more than just praying. A spiritual discipline is more than just reading the Bible. A spiritual discipline is more than just fasting or giving to the poor. It's more than just confession. And I say it's more because it's very possible to do, to do all these spiritual things and yet miss Christ entirely. Again, quoting Richard Foster in Celebration of Discipline, he says, The spiritual disciplines are intended for our good. They are meant to bring the abundance of God, and I might add the word blessing, into our life. He says, it is possible, however, to turn them into a, another set of soul-killing laws. Law-bound disciplines breathe death. When the disciplines degenerate into law, they are used to manipulate and control people. He continues, once we have made a law, we have an externalism by which we judge who is measuring up and who is not. Without laws, the disciplines are primarily an internal work, and it is impossible to control an internal work. When we genuinely believe that inner transformation is God's work and not ours, we can put to rest our passion to set others straight. The moment we turn the disciplines into law, we qualify for the same stern warning by Jesus against the Pharisees. You know, I'm not sure about you, but the longer I live and the longer I'm a Christian, I make up these ridiculous rules in my own head about what constitutes righteousness and what constitutes wickedness. Or sometimes I have these, these markers in my head of what constitutes good Christianity. What makes a good follower of Jesus? And on the contrary, what doesn't? And believe you, it's not, it's not stuff that's written in the Word of God. It's stuff that I've made up. There's all sorts of things. If I start mentioning them, you'll see right, right inside my brain and you'll start judging me. <laughs> but we make up all these rules and we make all, the, all of these, uh, these laws that, that constitute what you and I think is good Christianity. You and I have a way of, of, of come up, coming up with a list of what makes us a good or commendable person before others. And sometimes what makes us commendable before, before God. And what Richard Foster is arguing is he's saying that we, again, when we create these laws... It's not the Bible, it's these laws. When we create these things, we're breathing death. These are soul-killing laws. They do not bring up freedom. When the disciplines degenerate into law, they are used to manipulate and control people and to make others like yourself. There's a danger in that. 
The danger is that you might have people following you and not following Christ. Have following up made man-made rules and laws and not following the word of God. It's a stern warning that Jesus gives and that Jesus gave to the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees did the exact same thing. And again, don't get me wrong. When you look at the life of the Pharisees, they were committed. They were extremely committed. They were zealous for God. And so zealous, they came up with all these rules, 300 plus rules for what makes a good follower of Jesus. What makes a good disciple of Jesus. I'm sorry, a good disciple of God. Instead, the blessed person delights in God's word, and that means he loves the word of God. The word delight means take great pleasure in. It has the idea of a consuming passion that controls your life. You see, everyone delights in something. Some people delight in food. Some delight in a job or a hobby or a career. Some of us delight uh, and maybe on the, on the verge of, of crazy and different sports teams. Some delights in particular friendships. And the psalmist uses the word delight to describe our relationship to the word of God. Ever see it like that? Are you a word delighter? Are you a delighter in the word of God? When you think about the word of God, does your heart light up? Those who are blessed by God love his law. And the psalmist says, and on it, they meditate day and night. The word translated meditate has the idea of digesting something thoroughly. It means listening to the word of God, reflecting on God's work, rehearsing God's gracious deeds, ruminating on God's law, and on his law, the blessed person keeps pondering them day and night like a love letter, a love letter that you cherish and you hold on to and you read over and over again. And the psalmist paints a picture, a portrait of that kind of a person who delights the law of God and meditates on it day and night. At the heart of the spiritual disciplines is worship, not just an activity. It is characterized not by doing or, uh, or some exercise, but of delighting. It's worship. It's worship of the God of the universe, the one who created all things and chose us and loves us. What if? What if we saw the disciplines as not just something that we do, not just something that we check off our list. Anybody check checklist kind of people? Not just a checklist. You know, it's been really hard. I've been going through the Bible in a year. I've been reading it, and it's like it's a checklist. It's like I, I did it, you know, and I, and I don't even know what I, what I read. I, just, I, I did it, and I read through it, or I glanced at it, or I, I breathed through it, or I skimmed through it, and I, I check it off. But what if the Word of God was to draw us closer to Him? What if when we read the word of God, you can imagine Jesus sitting there and you're conversing with him and he's conversing with you? What if we saw every discipline this way? Fasting and confession, the word of God, giving alms to the poor, 
reading the scriptures, not just doing something. What is meditation and why do we need it? What's the difference between modern day meditation and biblical meditation? Let me explain here, uh, from, just again, from Richard Foster's book. I'm getting a lot from his, his particular book on uh, the spiritual disciplines. He says, Eastern meditation is an attempt to empty the mind. Christian meditation is an attempt to fill the mind. Eastern forms of meditation stress the need to become detached from the world. There is an emphasis upon losing personhood and individuality and merging with the cosmic mind. There's a longing to be freed from the burdens and pains of this life and to be released to the impersonality of nirvana. There is an escaping from the miserable wheel of existence. Detachment is the goal of Eastern religion. And yet Christian meditation goes far beyond the notion of detachment. There is a need, yes, for detachment, but we must go on to attachment. The detachment from the confusion all around us in order to have richer attachment to God. And that's why when you read through any of the epistles, Paul will talk about how we need to fill our minds with Christ. And the psalmist here says to fill our mind with the word of God. Delight on his word and meditate on it day and night. It is not an exploration of the subconscious. No. Meditation is really about a, a lover and the one beloved. Christian meditation, very simply, is the ability to hear God's voice and then to obey his word. Maybe the spiritual disciplines can be defined this way. It's not doing something so much as it is posturing. What happens in meditation and the spiritual disciplines is that we create the emotional and spiritual space which allows Christ to construct an inner sanctuary in the heart to give space, to posture so we can hear God. Lastly, the psalmist says that a blessed person will be known by their fruit. It's, it isn't too different than the word Jesus used in John chapter 15 when he spoke about being connected to the vine. In verse 3, it says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. In each case, there is a stress upon changed behavior as a result of our encounter with the living God. In verse 3, we see this beautiful description of the blessings which the righteous person experiences. The tree prospers from the water by yielding its fruit in its season. The Bible tells us in season. In other words, it takes time. Growth is a process that does not happen instantaneously or automatically. It takes work. In the last line of verse 3, the psalmist writes, in all that he does, he prospers. The prosperity is not so much material as it is spiritual. We prosper by growing in grace, coming to maturity, and thus producing or bearing fruit. People read the Bible for all sorts of reasons. 
no different the reasons why we read any kind of book. We want to be taken to another world. We want to be entertained. Sometimes we read it to be inspired. It can motivate us. It can remind us of who we are or what we were meant to be or where we're headed. It's inspirational because it gets us through tough times. Sometimes we read to gather information. We don't know enough, so we read it to learn more about God, about God's involvement and participation in history, about us. Does the Bible have anything to say about why I am the way I am or why we are the way we are? There are many reasons why we read the book. And so the question I have, and this is the last thing I'll say before I close, if this is the case, then what is the role of knowledge and spiritual formation? Let me repeat that. If this is the case, what is the role of knowledge, information that we gather in the scriptures, why we read it, and our own spiritual formation? Maybe one reason people devote so much time to listening to preaching and teaching is to understand the Bible better. But there's always a follow-up question when we say, I want to know the Bible better. Why, what, why do I want to know the Bible better? John Ortsberg, one of my favorite authors, uses this illustration to describe the relationship between the two. He says, take any person you know whose knowledge of the Bible is, say, 10 times greater than the average unchurched person. Then ask yourself if this person, who is 10 times more knowledgeable in the Scriptures, if this person is 10 times more loving, or 10 times more patient, or 10 times more joyful, or 10 times more, you fill in the blank. But the goal of reading the scriptures and the goal of meditating on the word of God, the goal of chewing and ruminating on the scriptures, on the word of God, is so that God can transform us from the inside out, not the other way around. Not the external to the internal, but the internal, the, the way of the heart. God has to do a surgery on our hearts so that's, again, the externals follow in that encounter with Jesus, in that encounter with God. Because, again, you may know a lot about the Bible, but if it doesn't change you, it doesn't make you ten times more joyful or patient or kind or loving or compassionate, then perhaps we, we failed in what the Scriptures was meant to do. But you and I know, you and I know that even as Psalm 1 teaches us what constitutes a righteous life, if we were honest with ourselves and we're forced to look inside of us, we would 
pretty soon realize what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, that there is none righteous, not even one. There's this definition of what a righteous person looks like, and there's six verses to fill that out. And if you and I were being honest and we read through that, I would say, and if I were being honest, and if I were confessing my sins to you, I would say, I don't fit the description. As soon as we read Psalm 1, we realize that's not me. That's not me. This righteousness that he's talking about, this contrast with the wicked, that's not me. I can relate more with the wicked than with the righteous. The only righteousness that I have in myself is as filthy rags. But there is one who has obeyed God's law fully. There is one who has fully delighted in God's will. There is only one who loves righteousness and holiness and obedience unto the Father. And his name is Jesus. He became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, Psalm 1 not only convicts us of our failure, but it forces us to flee to God for his great mercy. The righteousness that, Christ, that God demands from us is what Christ fulfilled for us in his life and death and resurrection. The righteousness which God requires of you has been graciously gifted to us by Christ himself. Church, that's the good news. The good news of Psalm 1 is that Christ is our righteousness. Christ is the one who delighted in the law of God and obeyed the Father until the very end, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Every week we gather together, we celebrate. We celebrate the Lord's table because it's that. It's that imputation. It's that God placing the righteousness of Christ on me.